Hello hockey fans, this is Mike Chambers along with Terry Fry. We are at the University of Denver at Magnus Arena. Uh, Terry has just joined me from Avalanche practice up by 25 and I was at DU practice and it's an exciting time for the DU Pioneers obviously this week, not so much for the Colorado Avalanche, but we're here to talk about both. This is traffic in front of the net. Terry, welcome. Thanks Mike. I got through the perennial accident there at Bellevue and I-25. Big rack, eh? Yeah. It's good for you to show up. Let's go to lunch after this, but let's get this podcast going. Are you buying lunch, by the way? Uh, the company might, since uh, we're doing the podcast Okay, here. all right. That'll work. Jeremy Smith, uh, according to Terry Fry, is going to be the starter uh, tomorrow for the Avalanche. Uh, but let me get something off my chest before we go any further. I just pounded right. the table, and I'm sorry. I've been told not to pound the table. I'm sorry. The table. I, you know, I got the Swiss and Norwegian in me. Right. makes me want to pound the table. I thought Jared Bednar made a mistake by not starting Dearborn, Michigan native Jeremy Smith in the last game at Joe Louis Arena. I, and I, I don't mean that to sound like it's a huge deal. And I know coaches shouldn't think that way. Calvin Pickard was coming off a good game. But they were playing the next night at Chicago. I don't want to make this a screaming second guess. I am just saying I thought it would have been a nice touch to play Jeremy Smith in the last game at Joe Louis Arena. You know, when you're working with a team that really has no positives, a storyline like that it is, is something that you can write about, you can think about that maybe perhaps – get you a little more excited for the game if you're a fan. So I, I agree with you. I think somebody should have stepped in and said, hey, coach, have you thought about, you know, whether it was Gabe Blanskog or anybody else in the organization, hey, coach, have you thought about the fact that Jeremy's from Detroit? Yeah. He grew up, by the way, hating the Avalanche. He denies that, but I think he probably did. A typical young Detroit hockey fan. But I thought it would have been a nice touch. And then Calvin, Calvin Pickard could have played the next night at at Chicago. And again, please don't try to make this into some screaming denunciation of Jared Bednar. I just think it was a missed opportunity to give it a nice touch. Okay, we're going to go back to the goaltenders for in a minute, but uh, first I want to go through the some, some of the topics that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, the last 10 games. Uh, the Avalanche is on uh, game number 73 tomorrow. We're going to talk about Eric Johnson's comments uh, from a story that Terry did. Uh, one-on-one interview that he had with the veteran D. We're going to talk about uh, Avalanche attendance at home and the visiting teams, such as last night against the St. Louis Blues when there were more Blues fans in the crowd than uh, Avalanche, and that's a continuing theme when we get to home games against the Blackhawks, the Wild, the Red Wings, or the Blues. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the DU Pioneers and their the top-ranked Pairwise number one DU Pioneers who opened the NCAA tournament on Saturday against Michigan Tech in Cincinnati, where I will be. I'm leaving for that regional tomorrow. The Piles are going to play the winner of Penn State or Union on Sunday for a ticket to the Frozen Four at the United Center in Chicago two weeks later. I hope uh, they played Penn State because Penn State's a terrific story right now. The well, it new, is. The new program. And they're also coached by uh, Guy Godowski, mm-hmm. who. Uh, went to CC. He's a Colorado College guy and he's uh, he's been an exciting young coach who's come along and uh, obviously he's got the Nittany Lions, uh, I think it's their fifth year, I want to say fifth yeah, or sixth. I think so. But they're in the tournament. Uh, they have they, terrific fan following, terrific fan base. They beat uh, 
Wisconsin for the Big Ten title on Saturday night. Uh, I believe it was in double overtime, but uh, Tony Granado's Wisconsin Badgers. Right, right. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be exciting weekend for college hockey, and uh, you know, and then <laughs> let's just go straight into the Avalanche. I mean, it's the final ten games, Terry. If <laughs> I, I just did a little research. If they go ten and all, hey Mike, tell your facts to shut up. <laughs> if they go ten and all. They've, they've currently got 20 wins. Yeah. If they go 10-0, they can tie franchise low in wins. So, well, not franchise. The Avalanche. The Avalanche right. in club yeah. history. The franchise low of 30 wins in an 82-game season. Um, they're not going to go 10-0, Terry. No. You, you don't think so? No. You know, I keep waiting for them to kind of, like, gather momentum, just go through one streak where everything goes right, you know, where the puck bounces off somebody's butt and goes in the net. You know, what happens, though, is you recognize there are certain bad karma years. You know, and this team is not that bad. I mean, nobody can be that bad. But they haven't ever gotten that kind of momentum switcher or they have never kind of gathered anything for one streak and I think that's one of the biggest damnations about this team is they haven't managed to even piece together that that ine- that seemingly inevitable nice run they've been playing decent hockey at times but they just haven't been able to put together the run the one I could I, the one I keep referring to and I guess some of you may get a little uh, tired of me talking about the Colorado Rockies of old uh, that's the Six seasons the Rockies spent in Denver before they became the New Jersey Devils, but that team went 15, 53, and 12 in 1978-79, led to the hiring of Don Cherry the next season. And if you, there were no, that you accepted ties. Ties were part of the game. So I, if you extrapolate to an 82-game season and give him half the ties, a third point in a game, they would have had about 49 points. That's the one I'm. I'm looking at, and right now the Avalanche have 43 points. So if they get six points in the last 10 games, they'll equal, in my mind, the record for NHL futility in Denver, the 78-79 Colorado Rockies. Terry, i got to admit I didn't see much of the games in Chicago and Detroit, but uh, i got to tell you, uh, the Avalanche it was 1-1 going into third against Detroit, and they had a 3-1 lead in Chicago. Uh, teams teams that can't hold leads or win a third period to win the game are, are obviously teams that aren't ready to win. Well, and let's see, there's this dark cloud over this team right now, and I, I kind of tried to diplomatically ask guys this even uh, after the game last night, of are you kind of waiting for bad things to happen? You know, and I think in their mind there is. There is that kind of aura of, God, what can go wrong now? You know, and I think the crowning blow... And I, I realize Jared Bednar has to think this way and say it publicly. He was critical of the team's response after that controversial Jonathan Taves second goal in Chicago. I, I have covered bad teams in the NBA and in the NHL, and it's a fact. The bad teams get shafted. You more so than the good. The good teams give you the, the aura of paranoia, and we've seen it with LeBron. And, Great basketball players and even even great hockey players, Sidney Crosby, yeah. for example. But the bad teams are the ones that get seemingly shafted the most. And I thought that was a classic case of they should have responded far better than they did. But that was just a horrendous call. And you know what? You're not a homer if you recognize. You know, the NHL posted the video with it, and they said there was inconclusive evidence. 
that it was offside. The evidence, the video they posted was conclusive that there was offside. You know, Terry, I, I know how uh, uh, how much of a stickler you are, and how I am. You're, gonna, you're not going to give me this the stick handling thing over the line. No, I said stickler in terms okay. of ethics and stuff like that. And we we don't if we're not on the road, we aren't going to. Uh, Say that we're covering the team, and I remember I I, I saw a, a couple of tweets from you. Yeah, where I basically said I'm off tonight, yeah. but and, and it was interesting. Uh, we obviously had a stringer in Chicago and Detroit, so the post had a uh, a writer for us there. But um, I remember you tweeting about that, and I was thinking Terry must be pretty fired up about this because, because I usually I I'm completely silent on nights off. Yeah. Recognize the turf of the person covering the game, whether right. it's you or somebody else, a stringer, and yeah, I was it just it just was ridiculous to me that they were looking right at the evidence, yeah. and it, the initial uh, reaction by a lot of people, including me, was that well maybe they didn't have that. What was the blue line shot? So you. You're supposed to get that all the time. And then they post that video with the explanation saying inconclusive. You know, and there are some people out there trying to split hairs and give you the you know, the, the rationalization for why it was not offside, but it was. It was a textbook case of offside. Joel Quenville even tried to make kind of the, uh, the Minnesota play he referred to as the February 8th game in which uh, the same thing happened, essentially, and the Blackhawks came out on the, I believe, I'm trying to remember the exact details, it was a Zach Parise, Zach Parise goal, and uh, he, he tried to justify it that way. Well, that's sport. There's mistakes. Uh, even if you've got video replay, sometimes uh, things just, the, the right call isn't made, and it happens. But uh, Let's go back to Eric Johnson, who's who's been very candid with you over the last week. Uh, this is a guy who's uh, who's not getting any any younger. I believe he's just a, turned twenty nine. Just turned twenty nine, and <laughs> he he pointed that out to me last week. Well, I, I actually sat down with him yesterday and talked with him. I know this has happened to you. Don't tell me that it hasn't. You sit down and talk with a the guy. Then you go back and you start writing the story, and you look you look at something. You say, God, it was his birthday today. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I have done that. So I put it in the story, but I wasn't able to tell him happy birthday to directly to his face. Well, he mentioned that to me the week before he. Well, he's looking for a present. He, 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 he no, was looking for a present. He's he's looking for some wins. He he's he's hungry to be on a winning team and get back to the playoffs. Uh, he, he's he's desperate. Uh, well, the thing I pointed out in the story is, and we've talked about it, he's under contract through two thousand twenty-two, twenty-three. And when you say he's untradeable, it isn't the money. He's making $6 million a year, and it isn't a denigration of his player's reputation or anything else. It's just that that term is scaring away other teams from seriously considering Absolutely. taking him on. Yeah. And uh, that, that I think he would be virtually, virtually impossible to trade unless you're matching up contracts, you know, with somebody's getting rid of a very long-term contract. And that could be possible, I suppose. So when I say he's virtually untradeable, it, it isn't the teams look at him and say, we don't want that guy. It's just, boy, boy, you really got to be all in to, to take him through 2022-23 at $6 million a year. And it isn't the money, it's the term. I think both of us can agree that we uh, respect and appreciate Eric Johnson's He's our best defenseman by far. In terms of his candor about this awful season, he, he's, been, uh, he's been very upfront. Uh, he, he hasn't. 
you know, hidden his, uh, I don't want to say terse words, but uh, he, he's, uh, he's, he's animated. And well, he missed 36 games, too, and that was very frustrating for him trying to come back from the broken fibula. Let's not feel too sorry about him. He's a professional athlete. He's making $6 million. Because he here. points out. Yeah. Um, any other Eric, Con- Eric Johnson comments? Well, I thought, that, you know, one of the most interesting things he said was that, that you go up and down the roster and nobody's having, nobody's having a good year. You know, it's almost like it's, a, it's, hard, it's hard to fathom that that would be possible. Can you, can you look at it and say, who's having a good year? I, Rene Bork's been a bit of a surprise. He's happy he's got a job, and he, but still. I mean, he won't next year, the, though. But. The day-to-day existence with a hockey team that rarely wins, their winning percentage is 299, by the way. That's, that's a decent batting average, but not so much as a winning percentage. Uh, it, it, it's just the day-to-day grind is really tough. For and there aren't, there aren't very many positives. Miko Rantanen is, is probably, I don't know, I guess that's probably number one. Mark Barbario coming in and playing pretty well after being placed on waivers by Montreal is a positive, but it's also a negative when a guy like that can come in. Matt Nieto's kind of disappeared recently after being picked Before up. Before I talk State. about uh, Tyson Jost and my conversation with him last week, tell me about JT Confer. How is he doing in your mind? Well, I think he's playing okay. You know, I, I think what, in my mind, the recognition is that he could be a positive element in the O'Reilly trade if he's a solid contributor, he's. But I don't think anybody is fooling themselves. This is a, anything close to like a future star. He's he's a younger John Mitchell in some ways. Yeah, no, I agree. Tyson Jost, however, I saw him in Minneapolis last week at the NCHC Championships. Uh, North Dakota upset Denver one nothing in the semifinals, and Tyson Jost had an assist on the game-winning goal. And then the following night, uh, DU played in the third place game and then North Dakota lost in the championship game to Minnesota Duluth. Tyson Jost was fantastic. A goal and two assists. Terry, this kid's ready in my mind. I'm no scout. I'm no coach. But from what I've seen, this 19-year-old kid, a Canadian who was uh, a freshman at the University of North Dakota, I think he can really come in and, and be a top six forward for the Avalanche. I'm not saying a, 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 a average, a normal NHL team. I'm saying for the Colorado Avalanche. <laughs> well, that set him back, though, throwing him into some of the bad so, team. Because it's just it's presenting the opportunity a year earlier than, than would be ideal. Here's but you're talking about a team that needs him, and I think that a team that can grow with him. Would you say that if he was a DU? I'm teasing you now. Oh, come on now. I have... Uh, Actually, I don't like any college kid that does the one and done. I think they should stay for at least two two years. Eric Johnson did it in Minnesota, by the way. But this is a different scenario because the Avalanche are so – as I pointed out to Tyson, and I wrote a story uh, from our conversation, he's the number one prospect for the NHL's worst team. Yeah. And he realizes that that says something. But, but they, they need him. You get thrown into a bad situation too soon, I think that can retard your progress. Though. Well, And I would wonder about that. And I, I hate to sound like a college hockey coach, but this would be my absolute philosophy. I would look the young man in the eye and say, if you're on that NHL roster next season, God bless you. Go. You know, you, you know I, 
it doesn't mean you can't finish school here. It doesn't mean you can't obtain a degree another way. And even if you don't want to go that route, it doesn't mean you can't pick up a book the rest of your life, you know. But they are going to step into a very lucrative profession. I would say if you're going to be on an NHL, I was said it to, to Heinen last year or anybody else, yeah. that if you're going to be on an NHL roster next year, God bless you. You know, we'll be rooting for you from afar. If they're going to send you down to the AHL and, quote, get a year of experience to indoctrinate you to the pro game and all that crap, no, stay here another year. And that's what happened to Danton Heinen. He left after his sophomore year here at uh, Denver and uh, signed with the Bruins, and he was uh, in the lineup on opening night uh, in Boston. And then uh, now since he's been in the AHL in Providence most of the year, and he's probably right now thinking, geez, it might be fun to be. I'd be a junior. I wish I was on that ride. But uh, and North Dakota, hey, it's 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 a perennial power. North Dakota is going to be good next year. They're always good. He's got plenty of reasons to go back for a sophomore year. And we know that Jonathan Taves, T.J. Osi, and Zach Parisi mm-hmm. are going to be in his ear because that's just how North Dakota works. And they're alumni. They're very passionate. And all three of those guys stayed for 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 two years. Mm-hmm. And I any any revers, Jonathan Taves. Uh, yeah, it's his idol. But then again, Joe Sakic is his idol too, and Joe Sakic is going to offer him a contract to perhaps play with Nathan McKinnon, Matt Duchesne, Miko Rantanen, Gabe Landeskog, mm-hmm. assuming those guys are still here. And that's what Tyson pointed out to me in Minneapolis. He says they've got a lot of talent, and mm-hmm. he's he's excited to play with. McKinnon and Ranton and, mm-hmm. and Landis Scott and Duchesne if they're here. That's exciting to him. Okay, I'm going to flip the coin, flip, flip it a little bit, and perhaps this is unfair and I don't want to blindside you, but what about Henrik Borch? Uh, uh, DU's, DU's equally fabulous freshman. You know, it, there's, there's some things I have to say for print, but from my conversations with DU and what they've told me from the Panthers, Henrik Borchstrom's had a better year than Tyson Jones. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, no. I'll point out, he's physically immature. That'd be the the one thing of uh, physically in terms of bulk. You know, the, he needs to go to the weight room a okay, little bit. But he's and he also looks about seventeen years old. He's a, a little more immature in the day to day stuff. He he he's uh, he he needs help here in school, uh, and you can't blame him. Well, it's he's a second Finland, language, and it's his first year in North America. Uh, he, he is he is immature in a lot of ways, and that's that's not his English is much better than my Finnish. <laughs> he's a he's a really good kid. He's got a bright future. He's a great hockey player. But uh, from what I hear, he's going to come back for sophomore year. Tyson Jostin and the Panthers are a way better team than the Avalanche, and I think that's the difference. And I think that's why Tyson Jost is going to be. But see, that's almost more. a negative in my mind, though. You know, if you're walking into a, potentially toxic situation and your opportunity is only because the team is bad then I think that that in the long run not might not be good for his progress now you know if part of this is I mean let's face it is is Joe Sackick's situation I think he's coming back uh, I think he's going to get a, at least another year to implement what or to take another step in his somewhat co- in his coherent plan it just hasn't worked so far, but there's a plan there, and I think they think you know it's time to give Joe at least one more year to carry that plan through. But if you hit the panic button and say, "Geez, you know, we got to do something right now," uh, I think they 
they need to think through whether just is ready a and b whether coming into this situation may not be the best thing for him in the long run well i can tell you from watching him last week and from everything i've heard from north dakota people he he is uh he's ready he's he's a he's a really talented forward uh he's he, he plays with excruciate uh, or incredible confidence and I think he's going to be a uh, a top six long time forward in the National Hockey League uh, we will wait and see Terry uh, let's go back to DU real quickly before we wrap it up uh, again I'll be at the uh, regional this weekend and then Terry basically has the avalanche the rest of the way uh, excited about the last 10 games <laughs> I think what they have to do is they attempt to uh, mi- mitigate and minimize the damage, and to maybe be able to walk out and say, "Well, at least we, you know, we kept trying, we but kept playing." Been trying this over the last month. And yeah, I know. It, it, it's it, it it there's there's no curve. There's really no improvement here. It, it, it's 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 okay, and then it's bad again, and then it's bad, and then. It, it just seems like it's it's uh, it's a lost cause. Well, I believe in this concept, and a lot of people don't. This season's cursed. You know, I don't mean that there was some some devilish superpower uh, pin needles in a doll or anything like that. I just think there's some years where you just go, nothing goes right, and this is really taking taking it to an extreme. Of Are course. Are you saying that Patrick Waugh from Quebec cursed this team? Yeah, maybe. Well, Patrick saw saw something that uh, a lot of us didn't, and uh, certainly he did not want to coach. This Patrick team. saw that he was not having as much influence in the acquisition of personnel, and some of it goes back to Patrick's and you know enamored, being enamored of QMJHL athletes and and, and players, and so I, I think it would be wrong to say Patrick's decisions quote were all right, but I think it was very much. A case of Patrick Wobb believing he no longer was a vice president of the team. He was just another plug-it-in, replaceable, temporary, disposable coach, and he didn't like that. Uh, speaking of one of Patrick Waugh's guys, Reto Berra played his second consecutive game, I believe, uh, last night or the day before in Florida. I know for a fact that that was all Patrick Waugh. Joe Sackick was like, eh. I don't know about this. Goal. It was Francois Lair who, who wanted Reto Barrett. Well, it was. I think Patrick had a heavy hand in that. But uh, he was anyhow. he was mad at Jaguar at the time, you know, coming down the stretch of that season for one thing. Yeah, and uh, and Jiggy had some uh, back injuries and stuff. Mm-hmm. But certainly Reto Barrett is is not the goalie that the Avalanche or Patrick Law envisioned. But when he when he hurt his ankle, maybe we're getting a little off track here. But sorry, but. When he hurt his ankle, he was playing pretty darn well. There was a time last season when he was the Avalanche's best goaltender, and he just so he so ticked him off with his lack of zeal in attempting to rehabilitate that ankle and get back that it, it did damage that never could be undone. Yogi Berra, that was his nickname, and he enjoyed that. <laughs> he learned quickly who he, who Yogi Berra was. And I don't remember, I don't remember any Yogiisms though. He. He embraced it. Did he go to well, restaurants? He didn't go to restaurants because nobody, nobody goes there anymore because it's too crowded? Well, what, the one in New York? Well, Yogi Berra-isms. Isms, yeah. I don't know about the isms, but he was a good guy. Uh, I enjoyed working with Reto Berra, and I wish him well, as I'm sure you do too. Mm-hmm. 
Terry, that's going to be it for this. Should we toss out the thing about the crowds before we get there? Okay. All right. Traffic in front of the net is going to continue for another minute. Terry, let's talk about the crowds, especially the visiting fans at the Pepsi Center. I thought, for the most part, the crowds held up remarkably well this season. You know, they're 25th in the league in attendance the last I looked. And the number is, is yeah, they're actually in the it's 15,000s. They're actually outdrawing the Nuggets unless it changed overnight. And I thought it held up pretty well. Now, we're all realistic enough to understand that there are unused tickets in these situations. You can see on the secondary markets, tickets are being virtually given away in some cases. And But I thought the attendance actually held up pretty well for the most part. Well, no, the aggravating thing now is the preponderance of visiting fans, and how, quote, visiting and fans. And how much the the holding up the attendance is because of the visiting fans. It's a significant. But it's always been like that. What happens now, though, is with this preponderance of the secondary markets, which in some cases are sponsored by teams and leagues, uh, the availability of tickets for Red Wings fans, quote, unquote, and Blackhawks fans, you see them sitting in season seats. I mean, those... Those obviously were purchased from from uh, Avalanche season ticket holders or or other m- fans who go to a lot of games, and so that if the Avalanche gets good again, that that would be the predominant, the easiest way to freeze out those fans is because people will either buying or holding on to those tickets. When is the Avalanche going to get good again? I think the best you're looking. You know, we've seen Turner Hunt. You saw what Toronto did this year. Of course, they have you know. The top rookie scorers in the league, and it, but I don't see that happening. I would say two years is probably the decent next year step to the playoffs. The next year is, okay, is probably one thing that I forgot the biggest to upside. Point out on my piece of paper, and that's the draft. Let's just say I've been asked this during other interviews and stuff. If if the Avalanche by the draft, if they hold on to Duchesne and Landis Gog and their other core guys, and you do get the number one pick, which is not a guarantee, obviously. The Avalanche, 18%-ish. Could, the Avalanche could pick as low as four in that first round. If if they do have the one pick, do they take Nolan Patrick, or do they trade that and try to draft 2D in the first 10 or 15 picks? Well, the realization there, though, is though you're probably not going to get a defenseman unless you're – you're probably not going to get a defenseman that can step in right away anyway, don't well, you think? Your chances of a lottery defenseman, obviously, to step in immediately are good. But let's face it, folks. This is gonna, You think so? Well, this rebuild oh, you mean the is lot- going to take more than a year. Okay, so I'm not saying that the Avalanche are going to make the playoffs next year if they draft two lottery D and insert them in the lineup. It's going to take longer <laughs> than that. I'm just saying, why are you going to take another forward, another lottery forward, if you still have Duchenne and Landeskog? I believe that they'll probably trade that pick. I think they'll keep it. Well, that will be, we will find out. Do you really think they they can get D who can step right in from this draft? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that maybe the D step in the following year. I just think that this is an organization that has ignored drafting Correct. first round D for far too long. And I think this is a good opportunity if you do keep these core forwards is to dramatically uh, draft some quality young D in the first round, not just one, but two, if you do trade that first pick. 
Yeah, I thought you were talking about guys coming in and playing right away. Oh, I'm saying in the first or second year, but obviously, as I said, the rebuild, I think, is You're not going to get Aaron Eckblad with a lottery type, just a lottery type. Adam Foote's kid uh, might be ready in the second half of the first round between 15 and 20, supposedly Callan Foote. Uh, There's some decent uh, young D in that draft, and all I'm saying is the Avalanche finally should just quit taking these first-round forwards mm-hmm. and make more of, that, more of an effort to draft first-round D. Mm-hmm. I think we've, yeah, we've documented the mistakes they've made in drafting, and they haven't even been lucky in the sense of finding guys like Duncan Keith type in the 50s. Well, you can say Tyson Berry was somewhat lucky. <laughs> no comment. Uh, finally, Will Butcher, the University of Denver. Yes, he's a he's he could he, he's a Hobie Baker finalist. He's a All American. He's all everything. He might win the Hobie Baker Award. He's the only defenseman that is among the top ten finalists. And yes, I think the Avalanche would be crazy to not offer the kid a contract. But uh, the kid is holding some cards because he could be uh, unrestricted free agent on August fifteenth. How zealously will the Avalanche pursue him? You know, I think it'll almost be in my in my mind. I think they will make him an offer, but I don't think it'll be a zealous enough one to forestall Butcher checking out the free agent market after August fifteenth. And I think he's smart enough to know. I mean, could you have could you have Will Butcher and Tyson Berry on the same team? Probably not. No. I don't think you can. You know, Barry's a better skater than Butcher. Butcher, Butcher's his leadership and his quarterback capability is Yeah, there's some definitely trade-offs there, but uh, Will Butcher is going to be a good professional hockey player. I'm not sure if that means the NHL, but uh, certainly the Avalanche need people in their entire organization, not just here in Colorado. And I think that uh, Will Butcher is going to be a good pro with a chance to be a National Hockey League defenseman, so I think that they should sign him. But uh, we will we will see what happens with that. Terry, I'm going to wrap it up. Let's go to lunch. Okay, uh, we'll play credit card roulette for who. Sounds good. Okay. I'm Mike Chambers. He's Terry Fry. This is Traffic in Front of the Net.